I can't tell you the number of times I've known of instances when something goes sideways and that be the very thing that God uses to find something bigger and deeper and more of a problem. He just, you know, he doeth all things well. He really does. And uh, I know it don't always look like that from where you're sitting. Where you're sitting tonight, you may be looking at it and saying, boy, the Lord's just really dropped the ball on this. But give him some time. He ain't done yet. He ain't done yet. Do you, do you remember in the New Testament, Christ goes in and, and heals a young maid, and the Bible describes how that whenever they go in, uh, she has died, and everybody's weeping and crying, and Christ makes an amazing statement. He walks into the room, and he says, Why make ye such ado? The maid is not dead, but sleepeth. Now, imagine how that must have felt if you were that parent in that moment. That would have seemed hurtful. That would have seemed insulting. That would have seemed belittling. You have watched your child draw its last breaths. And then this man that you've asked to come in and to help you and to heal in this situation walks in and sees you weeping and sees you crying and, and tells you what I heard growing up a lot, dried up, you know. Why, may, why are you being so excitable about this? But you see, here's what the Lord knew. Here's what he understood that they didn't understand. He wasn't through yet. In that moment, it made sense to be panicking, but he wasn't through yet. He wasn't getting ready to leave. He had just showed up. And he raises that girl from the dead and restores her to life and does something nobody could have seen and nobody could have anticipated. And you know, you where you're sitting right now in your life and what you're struggling with, you may be making much ado about it. I'm not fussing at you. I'm just saying he ain't through yet. Give him time to work. Give him time to work. Be patient. Amen. You have as much time as he says is appropriate because he is the God of time. Amen. And he, he ain't never been late. He has never, he's never been late. He's always been on the right time. And just be patient, man. Give God time to work and let him work in his way. Sometimes it looks like he's making a mess of things. And yet he is really bringing it all together. Do you remember the young boy that was possessed of a devil who was cast off into the uh, fire and in, in, into the water and they bring him to Jesus? The disciples, they could not heal him. They couldn't understand. Not only could they not help, they couldn't even figure out why they couldn't help. And they bring him to Jesus and the Bible describes how that Jesus rebukes the devil, but that as the devil comes out of the young boy, he tears him and leaves him as it were dead. Now think about that. We asked Jesus to help us and to fix this, and he made it worse. And sometimes he's got to make it worse before he can make it better. Sometimes he's got to kill it before he can raise it from the dead. And in your situation, you may not understand what you're going through tonight. And you may say, well, preacher, I can't see any good in this. I can't make any sense out of this. Well, hey, give him time to work. Be patient. Give him time to work. And you might be amazed what he does. Psalms chapter number 3 tonight, and we'll have a little church, man. I I felt like we already had some church. Psalms chapter 3, and let's begin reading in verse number 1. Psalms chapter 3, verse number 1. We'll read down to the end of this psalm, just eight short verses. The Bible says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, say law. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I waked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. 
Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Oh, thank you for how you've met with us already. Lord, it just feels so good to go to church with you and to come to a place and for you to have already graced it with your presence and your blessing and your power. Lord, I'm encouraged tonight by the testimonies I've heard and by the spirit of worship that we felt in this place. And I pray, Lord, for myself personally that I'd not do anything to quench the influence and working of the Holy Spirit tonight. Lord, may I be a vessel through which he can minister. And may everything I do enhance and uh, and extol the testimony and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in this place. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. May this not just be a, a service where we get together and talk about you, but Lord, may we get together with you and meet with you. And may real serious business be done in our souls tonight for your glory. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things I'm so grateful for in my King James Bible is how uh, in the book of Psalms there are these little descriptors that will give a little bit of context about what is going on in a given psalm. And you'll find that when you read the descriptor that's given in the book of Psalms chapter number 3, that this passage of scripture details for us what is undoubtedly one of the darkest and most difficult times in the life of King David. I want you to notice what it says there in the book of Psalms chapter 3, just before verse number 1. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. If you're a student of the Bible and you've studied the life of David, then immediately this strikes you as one of the prominent chapters in David's life. And David, uh, because of some sin in his life and some choices in his life, God chastened David and sin bore some natural consequences in his home and in his family. And David's family, I'll just be honest with you, David's family was a mess. They were, man. I'm talking about Jerry Springer mess. I'm talking about like a mess, you know. And uh, his family was just always in pieces. Here's the way the Bible described it, that the sword would never depart from his family, from his home. And as David gets up in years and his children are grown, he begins to particularly see the fruit of some of those choices that he had made as a young man. One of the choices that uh, he has made, the the fruit that it bears, is one of his uh, sons abuses and harms and and rapes one of his daughters. And uh, she, of course, is, is destroyed and heartbroken over this. And she is the sister of another of David's children by the name of Absalom. And Absalom, uh, he, in retaliation for this, slays this son and is then forced to be driven into exile so that he might escape judgment because of his crime. Absalom spends some time uh, amongst the Philistines in exile. It's amazing, by the way, sometimes to look at how some of the choices David made as a young man replicate themselves in his children as they get older. Uh, man, that is a that is a sobering warning to me that what I do, my children will do. And, you know, David himself spent a little time in exile amongst the Philistines when he was fearful of his life and running from Saul. Instead of running into the arms of the Lord, he ran into the arms of the Philistines. And isn't it interesting that his child, when he gets older, gets in a tight spot. He don't run to God. He runs to Gath and he runs to the Philistines. And so David uh, then uh, calls his son Absalom back home 
And there is sort of a semi-restoration that takes place and, and reunion between him and his son Absalom. But Absalom, still feeling jilted and still feeling aggrieved and unjustly treated, begins to conspire as to how he can wrestle the throne away from his father, David. And the Bible describes the conspiracy. You'll have people sometimes that'll use that word conspiracy like it ain't a real thing. Uh, the only conspiracy uh, that ain't a conspiracy is the conspiracy that conspiracies ain't conspiracies. Somebody say amen to that. Even if you don't understand it, say amen to it on credit. Amen. Trust you'll figure it out later. The Bible says about Absalom and his plan, the conspiracy was strong. The conspiracy was strong. He had figured out a way to pay daddy back for what he felt like was some unjust treatment on his part. And so Absalom, he gets all of the requisite men in place that he might institute this coup against David. The trumpets are blown. Absalom is proclaimed king in, in Israel. And David is forced to flee under duress, under threat, under hostility from his home and from his throne and go into exile, afraid that Absalom would not only kill him, but destroy the whole kingdom in the process. I don't know about you, man, but I you've probably had some bad days, but probably not as bad as David has had here. You've probably had some hard times, but probably not as hard as what David is going through here. He's got a daughter that no doubt is devastated by what she's been through and possibly hates him for his indifference and inactivity on the matter. He's got, he's buried one of his children that's been murdered at the hand of another of his children who hates his guts and has driven him off the throne. He is humiliated. He is broken. He is devastated. He is fleeing for his life. And it's under those terms that he pins this psalm. I would say that as we study this psalm, verses 1 and 2, uh, provide for us a little short introduction, and it sort of describes the situation as it appeared before David. Notice three things very quickly before we preach. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? In this psalm, we see that David's foes are manifested. He describes how that problems and enemies and troubles are beginning to pop up all over his life. I've already said it and described it. I won't recount it too much, but notice three things. One, in this passage, his home has been shattered. He has family problems going on. His family is in pieces. They hate each other. They despise each other. They distrust each other. And by the way, the problems that David's family had were not confined to Absalom. But you'll find that even after David dies and even when Solomon ascends the throne, he's got more problems out of other siblings, other children of David. David's home was messed up. His home had been shattered. Let me say number two, not only had his home been shattered, but his throne has been stolen. The purpose to which God had called him has seemingly been ripped away from him. What he thought he was born to do, what he thought he was built to do, what he thought he was ordained to do, what he thought he was fated to do has now been ripped away from him. And he has no clue what his function and purpose is anymore. You know, sometimes one of the hardest things in our life we go through is when we feel like our sense of purpose has been removed from us. We thought we were on a path, man. We thought we were on a trajectory. You ever had a season in your life when you thought you had the rest of it all figured out? And then God just showed up, blew on it. <laughs> you thought you had a clear path between here and glory and everything that happened in between. But then all of a sudden, everything is launched into turmoil. That's where David's at. His home is shattered. His throne has been stolen. But then number three, his heart has been broken. 
he would go on. The Bible describes how that that coup was short-lived and how that Joab, under the leadership of David, was sent out to hunt down Absalom and to reestablish David upon the throne and how that Absalom, even though David had begged Joab, his general had begged him not to harm Absalom, Joab, being a cruel and callous man, disregarded what uh, David had said and slew Absalom nonetheless. And whenever Joab and them come back and they tell David that Absalom is dead, they're thinking he's going to be happy. They're thinking he's going to be rejoicing because his enemies have been destroyed. But that was his child. (laughs) And he cries out and he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, Oh, that it were me. Oh, that I had died and thou had lived. And his heart is just broken in two. You know, sometimes, man, you look at this and the solution ain't going to bring the peace you think it will. And his heart is broken. I see his foes are manifesting. Then I notice, number two, his foes are multiplying. He says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. One of the things you'll find when trouble comes in your life, you'll find who's really on your side and who's not. And David learned that. David learned who was really on his side and who was not. The Bible describes how there was a man by the name of Ahithophel who had been a counselor, a faithful counselor to David. David thought he was his friend. David thought he was his supporter. David thought he was on his side. But the moment that Absalom uh, drives David into exile, he finds out that all that time Ahithophel had been plotting against him, had been waiting for his opportunity, waiting for his moment to be able to destroy David. By the way, Ahithophel's the grandfather of Bathsheba. No doubt he had seen and, and, and logged away and charted what had happened whenever David went in and stole Bathsheba from Uriah, her husband, and he had never got over it. In fact, the Bible describes how that he gave counsel that they were to pursue after David and they were to slay David. And whenever uh, the uh, testimony and the, and, and the counsel of, of Ahimelech is followed instead of his, he goes home and sets his house in order and hangs himself and kills himself. He said, Preacher, why would he do that? Because his plan to destroy David had been overthrown. It had been thwarted. You say, preacher, what has that all got to do with, hey, sometimes when trouble comes, they start coming out of the woodworks. Solomon describes in the book of Ecclesiastes that as we get uh, advanced in our life, comes to a place the clouds don't come one at a time, they come one right after the other. And wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be wonderful if troubles and problems and trials would just line up in a good single file line and take a note, and take a number, and wait patiently for you to recover from the one before the next is ready to slap you right in the jaw. I'm sorry, friend, that's not how life works. Sometimes troubles will mount in your life. They won't just come one at a time, but they'll stack up and pile up. And David says, man, I mean, things started to go wrong, and all of a sudden enemies started popping up left and right. People I thought loved me, people I thought cared about me, people I thought supported me, they uh, lifted their hands against me and lifted their heels against me. And all of a sudden I found myself surrounded in a hostile environment. His foes are manifesting and his foes are multiplying. But notice number three, his foes are mocking him. Verse 2 says this, Many there be which say of my soul, There is no help for him in God, Selah. You can almost hear it there in the streets of Jerusalem as the old king has been driven down the king's highway and into hiding and into exile. You can almost hear the commoners standing on the street and saying, Well, it's all there is for old David. Not even God can help him now. He's done for. Well, I guess he wasn't really God's king because if he was, he'd still be on the throne. I guess God's done with David. He's bearing the fruit of his choices. I'm sure there were many that were even in those councils of Absalom 
that looked at Absalom and said, we believe that God has chosen you, Absalom, to be king and not your father. No doubt word had reached him that people were real quick to dismiss him and to suggest that God had give up on him and had cast him away. You know, one of the hardest things when we go into trouble is the way our soul is scorned for its faith in God. They say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. I've had problems in my life. I've never had somebody come up and make fun of me for being a Christian. And I hope that's true. I hope you've never experienced that. It's not something that doesn't happen, but I hope you've not experienced it. But here's what does happen. Your flesh will mock you when you're struggling. Your flesh will mock you. Your doubts will mock you. Uh, your, your unbelief will mock you when you're struggling. When you're going through trials, your flesh will say, See, I told you God didn't love you. See, I told you God didn't care about you. See, I told you God wouldn't help you. Before you know it, man, if you ain't careful, those thoughts, they will dominate your mind. It'll get to a place where that's all you'll hear in your every waking moment. I see that his foes are manifesting and multiplying and mocking. But, you know, one of the important things when you read the Bible is to read it to the end. What I mean is not that every time that you read a verse in Scripture, you've got to read to the end of the book of Revelation, but I mean you ought to read to the end of the context. Because when I read this passage, now, here's what you'd think. I'll tell you what this psalm would have been if the Holy Ghost had put the pen in the hand of Toby Weber. It would have probably been a lot of griping and moaning and complaining and belly aching. It would have probably been vivid dreams of vengeance and of justified vindication. But that's not the case in David's situation. Oh, David wants his enemies overthrown. David wants himself to be secured back on the throne. But we find that David spends more time in this psalm talking about how good God is than he does talking about how bad men are. And he ends this psalm with an amazing phrase in verse number 8. I want you to notice it. He says, salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Men, listen to what he says. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Isn't that an amazing phrase? Now, you'd expect that phrase to be in the psalm that he writes on the day that God gives him deliverance from all of his enemies. You'd expect that verse to be found in the psalm that's written on the day that God delivers him from the hand of Saul. You'd expect that psalm to be found, that phrase to be found in the psalm uh, that's given on the day that he was coronated to be king over Israel. But it's none of those glowing occasions in David's life, but rather one of the darkest, one of the most difficult moments in his life. Because he gets his mind on the Lord, he rounds that thing out by saying, you know, despite everything I'm going through, despite all that I'm experiencing, despite all the things that I can't explain and can't understand, despite my shattered home, despite my stolen throne, despite my broken heart, God is still blessing me and being good in my life. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight for the next few moments, blessings for a broken man. Man, isn't it good to know that just because we're broken doesn't mean that God can't bless us? And just because things are hard doesn't mean that God isn't good? You're going to go through times that are hard. I'm talking about hard. And you need to make up your mind now that just because your path is hard, that doesn't mean your God is not good. Uh, Your theology has got to go deeper than the thimble. And you've got to recognize that even when you can't explain Him, you can still extol Him. And even if you can't, even if you can't figure Him out, you can still have faith in Him. And you can still trust in Him. David, listen, his problems ain't fixed by verse 8, but his heart is fixed on God by verse 8. And he's saying, hey, I don't understand what I'm going through, but I know God's still being good to me through this. And I'm going to praise Him, and I'm going to trust Him, and I'm going to lean on Him. And I'm going to see the good that God is doing in my life and not just the grief that men are pouring into it. 
Here's what I want to know tonight. How did he do that? You ever see somebody do something and think, how did they do that? Sometimes I watch these good musicians play instruments. I think, how they do that? I mean, God gave them more fingers than he gave me or something. I don't know how they they do that. And when I read this passage, I just say, man, how did he do that? Well, I think the Bible shows us how he did that. I want you to notice three things that I think were a blessing to him in this season of brokenness. Look at verse number three. The Bible says this, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. You know, everything David says in verses 3 and 4 direct uh, connect to the direct, express, personal experience of the presence of the Lord in his life. You've heard me say before that that there's a difference between what we would maybe call the express uh, presence of God and the experiential presence of God. God is always everywhere. Uh, there's never a place that God isn't. He's always everywhere. He is, the theological term would be omnipresent. He's always all together at all times in all places. And I would say that in your life it is true that He always, in terms of His providence and in terms of His care, He is always present in your life. He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. But there's also a difference between Him being there and us being able to tell that He's there. And David says, you know, one of the things that blesses me in the midst of all of this is to just be reminded there's a lot of people I thought would be there when things went bad and they ain't there. But you know who is there? God is there. And he's reminded of the presence that comforts him. Notice two things that he mentions in this verse. Number one, he mentions how he was helped by the Lord. He says, thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. Isn't that precious? He says, everybody's abandoned me, but Lord, you haven't. You're sticking with me. Amen. You're a shield. You're here. When all these things would launch themselves against me, you're there to bear all those things and and to be a barrier against all those things and to protect me from all those things. Hey, no telling the things that God would spiritually protect us from if we would let Him be our shield. What I mean by that is by resting in Him and His promises and putting our faith in Him, wonder how many things that are thrown at us would never get to us if we would let Him be our shield in the first place. We'd say, now Lord, I'm going to trust You. I can't fix this problem. I'm going to trust You. I can't fix this person. I'm going to trust You. I don't have a solution. I'm going to trust You. David, at this moment, he doesn't have a solution. But he says, I know the Lord is my shield. He goes on to call Him this. He calls Him His glory. This is a humiliated man right in this passage. You understand, he has been driven out from his throne room. There's probably no more humiliating experience for a king than to be exiled and to be kicked out of your throne. Imagine the insecurity he felt. He's an old man by this time. And his younger and stronger and more virile son has wrestled the throne away from him. And I'm sure it's interesting because they don't realize it. Uh, David probably don't realize it, but they're shaken back in, in, in the palace when they're talking about whether they go to war against David. And one of the wise counsel that's given to David is that David's a man of war and the men around him are men of war. And they looked at him like he was an old lion. You didn't charge into his den. But David probably didn't feel that way. David feels like I'm the humiliated old man that was too weak to hang on to my own throne. And I'm sure David was embarrassed at his situation. (laughs) I'm sure David was embarrassed at what he was going through. You ever been embarrassed at your problems? You ever just thought, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I let this happen in my life. I don't know. I I never thought it'd be my kids, but it's my kids. 
I never thought it'd be my marriage, but it's my marriage. I never thought it'd be my life, but it's my life. I never thought it'd be my testimony, but it's my testimony. And he's humiliated now. But you know what he's learned? He's learned when he's humiliated, he don't have to talk about himself. He can instead talk about the Lord because the Lord is his glory. You don't have to talk about all your problems. In fact, you might find it helps you to quit talking about your problems and start talking about your Lord. You might find your life is not as steeped in shame if you'd instead, I'm not talking about hiding what you're going through. I'm not talking about uh, concealing what you're going through. I'm just talking about instead of your life being a constant churning of the urn of your troubles and sorrows to say, hey, listen, there's a lot I can't glory in in my life. There's a lot I'm not proud of. There's a lot I don't understand, a lot I, I can't speak to. But I can tell you this, I'm proud of my God. I'm proud of what He's done. He is my glory. He is wonderful. I may be a mess, but he's the master. He's precious. Hey, listen, I'm telling you, some of y'all, if you're going to worship, you're going to have to get past your problems to do it. You're going to have to quit letting your life be all about your problems. I know you got problems, and I know they're real problems. And I know that might be worse problems than what I've ever gone through, or, or by the grace of God will ever have to go through. But I'm just trying to tell you, if you're going to get help from the Lord, you're going to have to be willing to take those things and put them in God's hands and get past them and talk more about the goodness of God than the grief that you're experiencing. He says, the Lord, He's my glory. And then He says this, He's the lifter up of mine head. <laughs> the lifter up of mine head. Uh, he He's not just worth looking at. He's the one that helps me to look when I don't have the strength to look. When I'm so demoralized and so discouraged and so defeated, and so disheartened, I can't even lift my head up. My head is hung low. He comes along and in His sweet power and presence, He puts those everlasting hands around my cheeks and just lifts up my head and puts and fixes my gaze upon Him. You gotta let him, you gotta let him, you gotta let him in your life. You've gotta let him do for you. He won't do things that you won't let him do in your life. But he talks about how he was helped by the Lord. And then number two, he talks about how he was heard by the Lord. Verse four. He says this, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. There's a few things jumped out at me when I read this. One is the phrase, with my voice. Isn't that interesting? He could have just said, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me out of his holy hill. But he says, I cried unto him with my voice. Speaks of two things to me. One, it speaks of this. He is using his own agency and the instrumentality of his person, of his intelligence, of his consciousness to seek out the Lord. In other words, his voice, feeble as it may be, he's using it to cry out to the Lord. His voice, imperfect as it may be. He's using it to cry out unto the Lord. Instead of just saying, well, I'm so helpless and hopeless and broken that I can't pray. He's saying, you know, one of the only things I can do is pray. And in your life, there may be a lot that you can't do and a lot that you can't figure out. But I'll tell you what you can do. You can pray. You can talk to God. Listen, if you're too spiritual for prayer, I can't help you. If you're too spiritual for prayer, I can't help you. If you think that your problems are bigger than prayer, I can't help you. 
If you think that what you're going through is harder than what prayer can help you, I'm sorry, I'm not sure you believe in this thing called Bible Christianity if that is your situation. But if you will get over yourself and get past yourself and humble yourself enough to say, hey, I need some help and I need to talk to God, even if I don't get alone in the prayer closet and have a 30-year revival, if I can just get in there and complain to God about what I'm going through, I'll get some help. He says this, I, I lift it up with my voice, but then it also reminds me of this. we got to talk to him if we want help. We, we talk a lot about this idea of inward prayer. And, you know, we look at Hannah in the Old Testament and how that she didn't pray with her, with her lips. She just prayed with her heart. And we talk about what Paul says in the book of Romans about the Spirit of God making intercession for us with groanings and utterings which cannot be discerned. And I get all that. I understand that, man. I'm glad he, when I don't know how to pray... Because we know not what we ought to pray. <laughs> well, I don't know what to pray. I'm glad there's the Spirit of God to make intercession for me. And I'm glad He can take what I say and sort of untangle it all and make it fit for the ears of God. But I wonder if sometimes we go too far in that direction. And, and, and we kind of just, we kind of present prayer as this esoteric, abstract concept that is really more meditative in nature uh, than participatory in nature. I'm saying this, if you want help, you're going to have to talk to God. You're going to have to talk to God. You can't, you can't ignore Him and expect help. We live in a society that is very much acquainted with the idea, I, I mean, awkwardness has been perfected to an art in modern day. Uh, a younger generation, I don't know what it is, man. I don't know if it's medicine. I don't know if it's Internet. I don't know if it's Facebook. I don't, I don't know if it's Taylor Swift. I don't know what it is, amen, but it's almost become cool to be socially awkward. I don't know why that is. And oftentimes it has become this thing where, where it is somehow, I don't know, in their minds a mark of depth or a mark of maturity to be socially awkward. And sometimes in our life we even as adults we sort of relish in the idea that our problems are bigger than prayer and so deep that we can't talk to, we don't even know how to talk to God. But I'm just telling you, you want help, you're going to have to talk to Him. You are. You're going to, you can't avoid Him and get help. You can't avoid Him and get help. You're going to have to talk to Him. Preacher, I wouldn't know what to say. Figure it out. You want help. Now, I could say the real kind and gentle and patient thing of, well, it don't matter, just speak with your heart, say what's on your heart. But I'm not sure I give you credit enough to believe you don't really even know what to say. I think your flesh is like my flesh, and for some reason, it just, it just, mm, it just bolts from the idea of prayer. It just don't like it. It don't like the activity of prayer. My flesh does not like to pray. I have to make myself pray if I'm going to pray. My flesh does not like it. But I have to remind myself, if I want help, man, I'm going to have to go to Him. I'm going to have to talk to Him. I'm going to have to tell Him what I'm struggling with. I'm going to have to tell Him what I need. You say, but preacher, don't He already know? Oh, yes, your heavenly Father already knows what you have need of. He still commands all men everywhere to pray. He still says we ought to pray without ceasing and not faint. Prayer is still the means through which God works in the life of His people. You say, preacher, I don't like that. Well, then lump that, but you're going to have to pray if you want help. And you see, it's not complicated and it's not hard. It's just your flesh hates it. But you're going to have to do it. David says, here's what I've learned. I've learned when I can't fix it, I can pray about it. And I've learned when I don't know what to do, I can pray about it. Here's the second thing he says, and he heard me out of his holy hill. He heard me. Now, David's situation has not changed, but he has been convinced that God has heard him. And he says, you know, I've looked at how he's helped me. 
But I'm amazed that he heard me. He listened to me. He listened to me. If we had as high regard of prayer as God does, we'd be more willing to pray. If we respected prayer the way God respects prayer. Are you listening to what I'm saying? If we as the petitioner respected prayer as much as the one that is receiving our petitions, we wouldn't hesitate to pray. Now, you would think the person praying, the person making the petition, would care more about the process than the person receiving it. At least that's the pattern government set for us. Somebody say amen there. But in fact, hey, listen, the, the, the heavenly department that's receiving and answering prayers, the throne room of God, our high holy intercessor seated at the right hand of the Father, he cares, man. He's real interested that you pray. David says, here's how interested he uh, he is. He heard me. He heard me. I see the presence that comforts him. Notice number two, the peace that covers him. Verse five. He says, I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. That's an interesting verse. It's really a statement of fact. I think very often we have taken this to a level of depth and profundity that I don't think, even though it's there, I don't think David intended it. I think the sort of abrupt and curt way with which David says it is intentional. In other words, here's how we read it. I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. Here's how I think David wrote it. I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. In other words, it is a pure, simple statement of fact that David is observing in his life. He's saying, here's what I'm seeing. Every day, my day ends the same way. I lay me down and I sleep. Now, for a lot of people out there, between that point and the next point, their life ends. But day by day, that's not been the case for me. I've laid me down and I've slept. God's watched over me. I have been vulnerable. I have been without guard and without protection. And I, have, I would have made easy prey for any number of people. Beyond that, any, any, any manner of illness and disposition of the body could have gripped me. Any malady could have afflicted me. It could have robbed me of my life. And yet, year by year and day by day, I have woke up every single morning. Amen. Can I tell you this? You've survived every night you've ever had. Even ones you didn't think you would. You've survived every one that you've ever had. How'd you do that? Man, that's a talent. <laughs> it's always funny that we celebrate birthdays. I mean, I'm, I ain't Amish or anything, but despite what you may think, I, I, we ought to celebrate birthdays. I'm for it. And uh, I think if you're going to celebrate a birthday, the cake ought to be big and the presents ought to be expensive. Amen? I mean, I may not buy you any, but, but somebody ought to, and I hope they really, really give you a doozy. I, but isn't it funny we celebrate that birthday? Congratulations on another year of avoiding death. <laughs> It's really a survival celebration is what it is. You've made it another 365 days and nobody got you. Congratulations. David says, man, every every day of my life I've laid down and I've woke up. How do I do that? Well, he says this, the Lord sustained me. He says, I couldn't have woke up if God hadn't woke me up. I couldn't have survived if God hadn't protected me. And we see a plain truth that's apprehended here. Don't miss it in your life. You're here because God cares about you. You're here because God has protected you. Better people than you, smarter people than you, stronger people than you have died. Uh, But you're still here. 
How'd that happen? God was faithful and God was loving and God was gracious. And He protected you in your life. We see a plain truth apprehended, but then we see this profound truth applied. Here's where he applies it. He says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. He says, now if I believe every every night of my life I've laid down trusting God, and every morning of my life I have woken up having found God faithful, and God has without fail proved Himself, and I have counted Him faithful, then why would that change just because the threats have multiplied? Why would that change just because the problems have grown? Why would that change just because the troubles are mounting? He says, in fact, if there were ten thousands of people right outside this cave, I could still lay down and sleep because the God that has protected me when there were no perceived threats is bigger than all of my problems. And I can rest in Him. Uh, Peace doesn't come from knowing it's all going to be okay. Peace comes from knowing that He's in control. We in it, The best the world can hope for in regards to peace is the idea that everything will work out and everything will be okay. But can I tell you, in your life and in my life, we don't always know everything's going to whatever be okay means. Uh, things that people say sometimes, well, at least it can't get worse. You'd be surprised. Peace doesn't come from feeling like it ain't going to get worse, and peace doesn't come from feeling like it's definitely going to get better. Peace comes from recognizing that He's in control no matter what happens. That the God that is controlling the affairs of your life loved you enough that He climbed on the cross of Calvary, that He 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 didn't just bear your sin, He became your sin. He didn't just die for you, He died as you. He became the worst of you. <laughs> he became the most wretched of you. He became the most vile of you because He loved you. He bore pain unspeakable. He bore sorrow unimaginable. And, and and everything you go through, everything He puts you through, He feels because He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Nothing in your life is entered into carelessly or haphazardly. You may have not prayed about it, but I promise you God has already pondered about it. God has already planned for it. And David says, I've recognized, I look at how God has been faithful every day of my life and it reminds me that He'll be faithful in this situation likewise. I see the presence that comforts Him and the peace that covers Him, but finally... I'll be done tonight. I see the prayer that convinces him. Verse 7. He says, Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people, Selah. He rounds it out by praying. And here's what he asks God to do. He asks God to arise. He asks God to overthrow his enemies. He asks God to save him. But all of that is backed by this phrase. Notice it. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Notice the premise of his prayer in verse 7. He says, God, I'm not asking you to do a new thing. I'm just asking you to do what you've done so many times before. Sometimes trouble will show up wearing new skin. It will show up looking different than it's ever looked in our life. And we think we've found a new problem. And it may be different in manner, but it's never different in substance. Troubles and trials and afflictions that find their way into our life, it may be different in measure, but it's not different in sort. And and, and God is able, whatever you're going through, to face the problems that you are encountering. You don't have to accept what I'm saying tonight. You don't have to believe it. I can't make you. I I can't require you. 
But I can promise you this and I can tell you this, that whatever you're asking God to do is not bigger than things He's done before. David's reminded, hey, I have a precedent for my faith. I have a precedent for my faith. I'm going to say it again. I have a precedent for my... I have a reason to trust Him. I do. My faith is not a stab in the dark. My faith is resting on His record. I have a reason to trust Him. He's always showed Himself faithful. I have a reason to trust Him. I see the premise of His prayer, but then I see the promise of His prayer. Verse 8, He says this, Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. God owns it. It's His. He has proprietary ownership. He has the utility patent on salvation. It belongs to Him. And David, he says this, I recognize if I'm going to be saved from this situation, I understand he's not talking about having righteousness imputed unto him, although he did. David did. Romans chapter 4 makes that abundantly clear. But I understand in this passage, he's talking about sort of what we would consider to be the, the, the salvation of his circumstances, God delivering him from what he's going through. But what he's saying is this, I know there's only one person that can save me. And it's the person that loves me more than anybody else does. There's one person that can change my situation. And it's the person that loves me more than anyone else does. Salvation belongs unto Him. And I can trust Him to do what I cannot do for myself. Whatever you're going through, I do promise you this. Hey, listen, the Lord, He is your Savior. He is your high tower. He's your buckler. He's your shield. He's your refuge. And if you'll look to Him, if you'll lean on Him, whatever salvation needs to look like in your life, He can get it done. He can get it done. It might be what would look like salvation to you from your situation would actually be your destruction. I don't know. But I do know that He doeth all things well. And I know salvation belongs to Him. And I know if you will trust Him, He ain't got no trouble getting salvation for you. It belongs to Him. He's got no trouble getting His hands on salvation. It belongs to Him. He can deliver you. He can change you. He can help you. He can save you from your situation if you'll trust Him to do it. And that's what David's saying in verse number 8. Man, I'm blessed. Thy blessing is upon thy people. I, 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 I'm, I messed up and I'm broken and I'm a mess and I don't know what to do and i got no solutions and I'm blessed in spite of all of it because my God is in control. Let's bow together this evening. I want to give you an opportunity, if God's spoken to your heart, to come down and meet Him in the altar. I don't know what you're going through. Some of y'all, I may know some of what you're going through, but I probably don't understand really to the depth of what you're experiencing. I, I, I may understand what, but I don't understand the how, and I don't understand the why, and I don't understand the depth. But rest assured tonight, God does. He does. If you think there's some proprietary nobility in believing you're all alone in your struggles, I'm sorry to tell you and report to you tonight, the Lord knows and He understands and he, He's experienced what you're experiencing tonight. But if you want help, you can come to Him and He'll give you the help that you need. Father, bless this invitation. May it extol and magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.